Amen. It is good to be with you today. I hope that you, like I do, feel your desperate need for this, for the corporate gathering where we pray, where we praise God in song and sing wonderful truths like we just did, where we hear his word read, where we will partake of the Lord's table here in just a bit, and then also as we get to sit under the preached word. We need this really bad. We need this every Lord's day. Right, where we can have our hearts and our minds recalibrated. I pray that you have that awareness this morning. So knowing ourselves, at least somewhat accurately, we know that we can't do anything of spiritual eternal good for ourselves in and of ourselves. So we now need to go to God and ask him for his help in this time as we look to the Bible. So please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, you are worthy of praise. It is because of your great and awesome character, it is because of your grace and your mercy and your love that we can, in fact, say that it is well with our souls. It is because of your wonderful plan of redemption that you have accomplished through your Son that we can say that it is well regardless of circumstances. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would be with us in this time. We pray that you would pour your spirit out on us now as we look to your word. We pray that you would fill me as the preacher of your word with your spirit this morning so that I might be helpful to these dear people who have gathered today. And we pray for all of us that you would fill us with your spirit, that we might have ears to hear your truth and eyes to see it in hearts that would receive it and love it and rejoice over it. We pray that you would fill us with joy today as we think on the fact that in Christ we stand forgiven. May that never be lost on us. We pray for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, in the church, we talk a lot about blessing. We throw that word around on the regular, or some form of it, right? We'll have something happen, or we'll be listening to a story that somebody tells us about something that happened, and, and we'll make the, the exclamation, oh, what a blessing. Or someone will ask you how you're doing, and you'll respond by saying, I'm blessed. We use the phrase regularly, God bless you. And in Drawing this out, friends, by saying it the way I'm saying it, I am in no way implying or suggesting that we are insincere in the way that we use the word blessing or in the ways that we will pronounce blessing or even in the ways that we will pray regularly for God to bless things. But I would ask all of us this morning, is it possible that we can at least lose sight of what is perhaps the most fundamental blessing for the believer. Is that possible? That we have lost sight of what is perhaps the most fundamental blessing for the believer. Maybe it's not that we've completely lost sight of it. Maybe it's that we assume it. Maybe it's that we've become somewhat inoculated to it. This blessing that we're going to consider today, it's almost like white noise, right? We just don't hear it. We don't perceive it. We're not as aware of it as we should be. 
And even if I, I wanted to play my cards close to the vest, you're probably tracking with me. You've seen the sermon title. Many of you are aware of the sermon text today. The blessing that I am referring to is the blessing of forgiveness. The fact that we can stand before the holy God as sinners, really guilty, and be forgiven. That is what I am positing is perhaps the greatest blessing in the life of the believer. Blessed are the forgiven. We get to consider that together today. Praise God for that reality. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open them up to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. So if you're in your Old Testament and you're not familiar, uh, looking at a Bible, you have the first five books of the Bible. Those are the, the book of Moses, the Pentateuch, the books of the law, as they're often referred to. And then you have 12 books that follow that that are known as history books. And then following those 12 books, we have five books that are often referred to as writings. Job and then Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. We find ourselves in the book of Psalms or the Psalter as it is often referred to. We will be making our way today through all 11 verses of Psalm 32. And now that you've had time to flip or turn your Bible on your phone and get to Psalm 32, I would like to read God's word for us. A masculine of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with brit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. I have four points for our consideration today. Four points, I will give them to you one at a time. This is another one of those outlines that I don't feel like is very clever and I don't care. I would prefer clarity and usefulness to you over cleverness any day. So point number one, here we go. Blessed are the forgiven. It's like plagiarizing the sermon title. Blessed are the forgiven. We're going to be looking at verses one and two for several moments together. Put your eyes on verse one. You see, after we're given the the heading there, a masculine of David, a musical clarification. We read these words. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. And this might go without saying, but it needs to be observed that there was real wrong done. There was real sin committed. It's not some hypothetical thing. Right. 
Sin, transgression was committed and it has been forgiven. And the man who has had his sin, his transgression forgiven, is blessed, David tells us. Look at the last half of that verse. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Again, sin is there, right? Sin as action. So by that I mean there have been deeds done, thoughts thought, desires felt, action that's wicked taken. And in that word sin, there also is Alongside the action piece, there is this thing that we refer to as sin as a condition, sin as a state. Inherited guilt, right? Inherited corruption of Adam, the fact that we are born in sin. We have been considering those realities even today from Romans chapter 5 and some of the songs that we have sung. So in this conversation about forgiveness and about sin being forgiven and about sin being covered. We're talking about both the action piece, but we are also talking about something that's even more fundamental. Something that goes even deeper than the wicked things that you have done and I have done or thought or felt. We're talking about an issue of our nature. We're talking about, as David says in Psalm 51, that we all have been brought forth in iniquity. That we were conceived in sin. That's not a statement about David's parents. It's a statement about all of us in terms of how we come into the world. It's like Jesus in Mark chapter 7 tells us that it is out of the hearts of men that come all kinds of wicked things. The issue is far deeper than just the wicked things that we have done. Or Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 when he tells us that we are by nature children of wrath. And as we've heard today about how sin and death came into the world through Adam and how the many were made sinners through Adam's disobedience. So, friends, sin is there in action. Sin is there in nature, in condition, in state. This man who is blessed is no upright man, right? But not only is sin there, you see it. Transgression is forgiven, but sin is covered. It's covered. It's been forgiven and pardoned, but it's also been covered. And the question is, covered by what? Let's keep going. Put your eyes on verse 2. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Look Look at what it says. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts No iniquity. It's not, again, that the blessed person, the blessed man, hasn't committed iniquity. He has. She has. It's that his or her iniquity is not counted against him or against her. So you ought to be in your seat as you're thinking about this and about what you know about God and about what we read earlier together from Exodus 34, that the Lord is merciful and gracious and slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and all of those wonderful things and who by no means will clear the guilty. Like alarm bells should be going off. Like the guilt is right in front of us. The sins have been committed. The nature is corrupt. The iniquity is there. So how does that work? God is holy. 
He won't clear the guilty. He's a righteous judge. He punishes evil. Full stop. Full stop. He rewards righteousness. Full stop. That is the standard for all men. Jew and Gentile alike. The scripture is clear. And God, unlike us, has a really good memory, right? He doesn't forget things. It's not as though he forgets the sin that's committed or he forgets the fact that we fell in Adam. And he certainly does not sweep it under the rug as though it never happened. That's not how it works. Friends, these verses, verses 1 and 2, and the entire psalm, of Psalm 32 for that matter, only make sense in light of God's plan of redemption that is accomplished through Jesus Christ. I'll say that again. These verses in this psalm only make sense in light of God's plan of redemption that He accomplished through Jesus Christ. This is fundamental that we understand this. This is kind of some of that, like, getting to practice the things that we'll talk about a lot. Christ-centered preaching, just kind of an aside for a second. We like to talk about that, preaching the Bible in a Christ-centered way. But what does that mean? That doesn't mean that we come to Psalm 32 and we look at the verses for a while and we talk about really good stuff in the text and then kind of slap the gospel call on the end of it. It's not what that that's not Christ centered preaching to just look at good things from Psalm 32 and then lay out the plan of salvation is not Christ centered preaching. Christ centered preaching, faithful preaching looks like we understand Psalm 32 and every other verse of this book in light of the main point of this book. That being that God purposed to redeem a people through his son, Jesus Christ, his work. His life, His death, His resurrection, it would be applied by the Holy Spirit all to the praise of the glory of God. So we understand every passage of the Bible underneath that banner. And so when you read Psalm 32, 1 and 2, and you read something like that, sin is covered, the Lord doesn't count iniquity against the blessed man, you immediately ought to be thinking, Jesus. That is not making some sort of exegetical hermeneutical leap that is irresponsible. That is faithful Bible reading. The iniquity of the blessed man, the iniquity of the sinner, is not counted to him or her, but it is counted to someone. The iniquity of the sinner has been counted to Jesus. This is the clear message of Scripture. That Jesus took upon Himself all of the law-breaking and all of the sinning in action. And He also took on Himself all of our corruption and guilt that we inherited in Adam. And then He took that to the cross and paid the penalty that the law requires. Namely, wrath of God, judgment, death. He paid that as a truly human being Truly God, yes, but a truly human being at the same time, He paid it in full. So that it's done. It's finished for the blessed person. For the person who trusts Christ, the penalty is paid. Objectively so. It doesn't matter how you feel. I care how you feel. Right? Don't get me wrong here. I want us to feel like, praise God, that's true. And at the same time, your subjective response, how you're feeling this morning, 
does not change the objective reality of what Christ did. That's the ground of your hope and mine. But not only did He take our iniquity upon Himself, pay the penalty, die under the law so that we would be set free from the law, He also fulfilled the law perfectly. God requires perfect righteousness if we are going to dwell with Him. So it's not just that we were given a clean slate, sins wiped away. But when God says, keep my commandments, love me with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, love your neighbor as yourself and you will live. That's true. Problem is, none of us have ever done it. No one will ever do it, save one. And Jesus did that. So he atoned for our iniquity and he covered our sin the end of verse 1, with His own perfect life. His righteousness. So, not only is my iniquity counted to Him and He paid that, His righteousness and perfect fulfilling of the law is counted to me through faith. That's the great exchange. And it's the greatest news in the world. And it exists outside of you and me. What I mean by that is that As we've already been thinking, it's an objective reality. It is a declarative reality. might even be a better way to say it. So when I go tonight and preach an installation sermon, one of my main, the main thing that I will encourage our brother to do is herald Jesus Christ. Hold Him out to your people every week. And remind them that Christianity is a religion that is founded upon news. Something happened and it's over. And now all we're doing is heralding that. We're telling people what God has done in Jesus Christ. There's nothing left for you to do. You respond to the news. Yeah, I'm going to turn from my sin and I'm going to turn from my own notions of my own righteousness and trust Christ. But you don't have anything to do in order to be reconciled to God. Now, once that happens and the new birth happens, your life changes. Amen. Praise God. That's true. The transformed life is real. You love God. You love His law after you've been born again. You want to obey. That's true. But the gospel, the objective declarative realities accomplished by God in Christ exist outside of you and me. So we are always, as we say so often, looking outside of ourselves to Jesus for salvation. For righteousness, for forgiveness, for blessing, for healing. And I want you to consider with me just for a moment the final words of verse 2. This matters also for our understanding. With those objective realities of the gospel in mind and the fact that it is not our perfection or our sinlessness or our own righteousness in which we stand. It's all about the righteousness of Jesus What do we make of these words? Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. In whose spirit there is no deceit. Reason with me for a moment. To have deceit in your spirit would mean that you are a deceiver. Right? You deceive others. You might even deceive or delude yourself if you have deceit in your spirit. You don't paint an accurate, excuse me, an accurate picture of you. <laughs> Creating a new word. You know the truth. In other words, you know the truth about yourself, but you don't confess it. You're a deceiver. There's deceit in you. 
So to have no deceit in your spirit in the context of what David is writing, in particular, in the context of where he's about to go, talking about the goodness of confessing sin, the devastation of hiding sin. To have no deceit in your spirit would mean that you know the truth about yourself and you confess the truth about yourself. You don't hide it. You don't deceive other people and you don't delude yourself into thinking that you're something you're not. When we read those words, in whose spirit there is no deceit, David does not mean that this blessed person has some kind of inherent or achieved righteousness. That's not what he's saying. Couldn't be what he's saying. He's just been talking about sin and iniquity and transgression and the like. When the text tells us, when David says by the inspiration of the Spirit, that in the spirit of the blessed person there is no deceit, it does not mean that that person has changed himself or herself into a person who is upright. Like you were a sinner, now you're... Now you, in and of yourself, are righteous. It's not even, looking at it in the new covenant sense, David does not mean that you have been changed by the Holy Spirit after conversion into a person who is righteous. That's not what he's talking about. And therefore you now have no deceit. And you somehow stand in that before God. That's not what he means. The clarification is important, friends. This understanding that to have no deceit in your spirit means that you acknowledge your sin. You own your sin. You're honest about your sin. You don't hide that truth from other people and you don't delude yourself into thinking that you're something you're not. There is no deceit in you. All right, the reason I say that has a lot to do with the next several verses. So now we're going to move on to point number two. We're going to consider verses three through five for just a minute now. Point number two, it is good to confess sin. It is good to confess sin. So for any of you who are anxious out there, just hang with me for a minute. Hang with me as we look at verses 3 through 5. So the flip side of that coin, if it's good to confess sin, it's devastating to hide. Verse 3. Remember, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For because when I kept silent, my bones Wasted away through my groaning all day long. Silent about what? It's clear in the context he's talking about being silent about his sin. Being silent about his transgression. Being silent about the iniquity that he's committed. Especially when you look down, skip down to verse 5 with me for just a second. We'll get back to it. But when he says on the flip side, I acknowledge my sin to you. So the opposite of remaining silent is acknowledging my sin to you. Right? I was deceived. There was deceit in my spirit when I was hiding my sin. But now there's no deceit in me because I'm acknowledging my sin to you. So keeping silent means hiding and concealing sin. Ultimately and most importantly from God but also maybe even deluding ourselves or hiding our sin from other people as well. All of those things would be underneath that heading. When David says that his bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, he's painting a picture, friends, of the devastation that comes from not confessing sin. The devastation and the inner turmoil that comes from hiding sin. It eats away at you. It literally causes you to waste away from the inside out. 
It's funny when you hang around Christians. You hear a lot of good things. You hear a lot of silly things too. So some of the time when somebody is experiencing a hardship or a trial or some kind of calamity or maybe they're struggling with depression or anxiety or something like that, right? Real sin, tough circumstance. Christians mean well, but they might say something like this. Well, brother, if you would just figure out what that sin is in your life that God is trying to point out, then you'd probably be delivered from this or that or the other. If you just figure out that unknown, that hidden sin, that unknown sin, like you don't know what it is, you need to figure it out and then God will remove the the weight. God will remove the trial. I would say that that's silly and not helpful because it's not biblical. It is precisely the sins that we know and hide that destroy our lives. It is not some unknown sin that's just kind of floating around over here. It is precisely the ones that you know darn well what it is, and it's eating away at you, and you don't tell anybody. You don't confess it to your brothers or sisters in the church. You deny and deceive yourself and delude yourself into thinking that it's not a problem. And you even think that maybe you can pull the wool over God's eyes if you don't confess it to Him. It's those kinds of sins that eat away at us. We know it's there. But deceit is in our spirit. And we don't bring it into the light. Charles on verse 4. David continues, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. He's talking about God's hand, right? Your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So this agony that David was experiencing when he wasn't confessing, owning, acknowledging his sin, he's telling us is the work of God. That agony and that anguish of soul is God's doing. The hand of God was heavy upon David all the time, he says, day and night. So what he's talking about, friends, is nothing other than the convicting work of God's spirit in the lives of his children. And as a result of that convicting work that the Spirit of God does in us, our spirits and our consciences are in anguish. There is a weight that we carry around. There's a darkness, almost, that we feel and perceive. Our unconfessed, our hidden sin, it it feels heavy to us and we groan under the load and we waste away and our strength is dried up just like David says. Don't know about you, but these are some of those words that just ring true to my experience. I trust that's true for you. There is so much as we'll continue to consider. Ultimately, because of Christ and the gospel, there is so much freedom and goodness that comes from confessing sin. All of this, the convicting work of God that David says was was causing his bones to waste away and he was groaning all day long and God's hand was heavy upon him and his strength dried up. All of that convicting work of God, hear me say this, is good. It's good, even though it doesn't feel good in the moment. 
I would go so far as to say, confidently say, that that convicting work of God is grace. It's grace. I don't know that we think of it that way. How is it grace? This like heavy hand of God. But, bro, that sounds like judgment to me. It's grace, though. It's grace because there is no freedom in unconfessed hidden sin, only bondage. And God means for you to be free. It's grace because there is no joy in unconfessed hidden sin, only sorrow. And God intends for His people to have joy. It is grace because there is no forgiveness in unconfessed sin, hidden sin. I don't mean that you have to confess every sin in order to go to heaven. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that you do not get to experience the wonderful reality of God's forgiveness because of Christ. That washing over you, you don't experience that at all when you hide your sin. And you don't confess it. But rather you experience what? Guilt and condemnation. It just crushes your frame, right? In other words, friends, not confessing sin, not humbly owning and acknowledging sin goes nowhere good. But when we humbly own our sin and confess it, there is all kinds of good that comes from that. Put your eyes on verse 5. David continues, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Praise God. So David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells us what he decided to do. The hand of God was heavy upon him. He was miserable. He was wasting away. And then he says, I acknowledge my sin to you. He confessed his sin to God. He stopped covering his iniquity. He stopped deceiving himself and others, right? He confessed his transgressions, he tells us. He decided, he resolved, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. So then, after that, friends, comes the awesome part. How did that confession go for David? How did it pan out? Right? We, on the front end, what, what do we fear? It's like, oh, can't, God's going to condemn me. Well, did God condemn David? Did God refuse to forgive David? Did God heap shame upon him? Did God chastise him? Answer, letter E, none of the above, right? You see it as well as I do. End of verse 5, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Amen, somebody, right? He forgave David's sin when David confessed it to the Lord. And this is why we can say what wonderful news and what a wonderful, awesome God we serve. Because when we confess our sin to Him, though He is the holy and righteous one, He is at the same time faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of Jesus. There is so much good in confessing sin. There is freedom and joy and forgiveness and cleansing and healing. Which brings us to point number three. Not only is it good to confess sin, number three, it is good to seek God. It is good to seek God. More precisely, it is good to seek God in confession 
and prayer. It is good to seek God in confession and prayer. We're going to put our eyes now on verses 6 through 9. We're going to make our way relatively quickly here because I think what David is saying is, is quite obvious. Therefore, let everyone, he says, who is godly, offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Let everyone who is godly or wise, you might even say, seek God in prayer in a timely manner. Right? Now would be the better time. Now would be the best time. Seek God now. And when that happens, nothing bad will result in it. No harm will result in it. Only good things. You see it here. Surely in the rush of great waters, turbulence, trial, hardship, calamity, sin of all kinds. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. Meaning they shall not reach the man to whom goes, to who goes to the Lord in prayer. Let the godly offer prayer. The rush of great waters will not reach him. You, David says, are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. So not only will bad things not result when we seek God in prayer and confession, good things result. Refuge. Blessed is everyone who takes refuge in the Lord. Right? That refrain is replete through Scripture. If you put your antennas up just really quick for that word refuge and that principle of taking refuge in God, you'll see it all over the place. This is one of those, like, once you're aware of it, you see it on every page. I, I promise you. It's all over Scripture. It's a great image of what we do. We come underneath Christ and He shields us, right? We come to the Lord in faith and the Lord shields us. We're a ref- He's a refuge for us. Preservation happens when we go to God and when we seek Him. Deliverance happens when we go to God and confess. And then in verses 8 and 9, David is going to give, again, by the inspiration of the Spirit, he's going to give counsel to us. And he tells us, I'm going to instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye open to you. I'm going to give you some counsel here. And then he says, be not like a horse or mule. Don't be like a horse or mule that is ignorant and stubborn. Don't be. You see it. Without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle or it will not stay near to you. Lacks understanding, ignorance, won't stay near, has to have a bit and a bridle because the animal is stubborn. Don't be like that. What's he saying? He's saying the godly will seek God in prayer. They will go to him and confess. Good things will happen. Don't be a fool. Don't be stubborn. Don't be ignorant. This is good for you. Right? We just considered how much good there is in confessing sin. How there's freedom and joy and forgiveness and healing and all those things. So David's point in verses 6 through 9 is that because of those realities, we should be quick to confess our sin to God. To seek refuge in Him. Right? When we sin, we have to run to God in humble and honest confession. But often, let's be real. I mean, guilty as charged. We don't do that. We don't do that. Certainly not very quickly sometimes. And we don't do that, I would posit, because of the reasons that that David alludes to. We don't do that because we're ignorant. We don't do that because we're stubborn. We're stubborn in that sometimes, again, real talk, we like our sin. We indulge things, desires, hopes, whatever they are. We kind of like it. And even though we know it's bad, and even though our spirit wages war against that. Sin in us and our flesh wants that. Whatever it is. 
And in our stubbornness, we can be slow to confess. Because, again, how many times have you had the thought, well, man, if I, if I pray to God about this sin that I'm struggling with, that's going to make me feel even worse about indulging in it. Real talk. I doubt there's not a person in this room that hasn't had a thought like that. That's just an example of how stubborn we are in sin. And David is saying, don't do that. But we're ignorant, friends, in that we lack understanding. We don't go to God because we lack understanding. What does that mean? It means that we get in our own head. It means that we listen to ourselves or even our troubled consciences, right? We listen perhaps even to the enemy. Remember, Satan is the great accuser of the brethren. We believe the lie that God won't forgive us. Not this time, not for this sin. No way. You have exhausted the grace and mercy of God in that area. Done. We believe that lie. No way will God forgive me yet another time for falling on my face. We believe that lie. We believe the lie that God is going to condemn us and that his disposition towards us will be one of severity or wrath. We believe the lie that we are not welcome in God's presence because of our sin and our guilt and our iniquity and all those things. And we believe that we can't approach the mercy seat. And that again, friends, is where the wonderful, glorious, objective, outside of you and me realities of the gospel come in. Because none of those lies, the lie that God won't forgive, not for this sin, this time, the fact that God might, the lie that he might condemn or be wrathful towards us or the lie that we're not welcome in his presence, none of those things are true in Christ Jesus. If we were standing on our own, they would be true. If you were standing in your own righteousness, even Holy Spirit wrought righteousness, that would be true. We would have no access to God as sinners. We could have no confidence to approach the throne of God as sinners. But thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. He is our great high priest through whom we have access to God and in whom we can boldly approach the throne. It's in Christ completely. We come covered in His blood, His righteousness, and therefore we approach the Lord. But it's never in our own, I just can't reiterate this enough, it's never in our own righteousness that we come. I don't care how much the Holy Spirit has sanctified you, or how much the Holy Spirit has sanctified me. It is never in our own righteousness that we stand. It is always in Christ Jesus that we come to God the Father. Which brings us to number four. Point number four. So just recap. Number one, blessed are the forgiven. Point two, it is good to confess sin. Point three, it is good to seek God. Point four, steadfast love surrounds the righteous. Steadfast love surrounds the righteous. Put your eyes on verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, David says. Again, friends, doesn't need a lot of unpacking for me. Sin leads nowhere good. Wickedness produces sorrow. Big question, though, who are the wicked? That, that matters. Who are the wicked? 
They are those who break God's law, who live contrary to it. That's true. The wicked are sinners. That's true. The wicked are not the righteous. That's true. It's clear that the wicked are being contrasted with the righteous. The wicked are being contrasted with the upright in heart. In this psalm and throughout the Psalter and even throughout Scripture, those two groups of people are contrasted to each other. But there's another contrast that David makes here in verse 10. Not just between the wicked and the righteous, right? He says, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. The wicked are contrasted not just with the righteous. The wicked are contrasted with the one who trusts in the Lord. That's going to matter for how you understand who the righteous are. That's going to matter how you understand who the upright in heart are. There's more. Verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So David encourages the righteous to rejoice and the upright in heart to shout for joy. But again, begs the question, who are those people? Who are those people? Because we've just been talking about in this whole psalm about the forgiveness of sin. We've been talking about the forgiveness and the covering of iniquity and transgression. So how is it that sinners and people who commit iniquity and people who commit transgression could ever be in that righteous category? How? It's clear that the righteous and the upright in heart are not the wicked people. But as I've already alluded to, in the context of verses 10 and 11, it's quite clear that David sees the righteous, the upright in heart, and those who trust in the Lord as one in the same. The righteous and the upright in heart and the one who trusts in the Lord is one and the same. The wicked are contrasted with those people, the righteous, the upright in heart, the ones who trust in the Lord. So in the context of this entire psalm, Psalm 32, reason with me for a moment. The ones who are righteous, the ones who are upright in heart, are the ones who the follow, are the ones who trust the Lord. You see that in verse 10. They are the ones who confess their sin to God and don't cover it. They are the ones in whose spirit there is no deceit. Right? That's verse 2. The righteous and the upright in heart are the ones who are forgiven. Verse 1. The righteous and upright in heart are the ones whose sins are covered. Verse 1b. The righteous and the upright in heart are the ones who don't have their iniquity counted against them by God. Verse 2. The righteous and the upright in heart are the ones who are surrounded by the steadfast love of God. Verse 10. So this is massively important. This reality. When we read verse 11 and countless other verses and passages in Scripture, but for right now today, verse 11. And we see a group of people called righteous. And we see a group of people called upright in heart. Let's just be very clear for a moment about what the Scripture is not saying. The Scripture is not saying that these people are upright in and of themselves. That these people are righteous in and of themselves. The Scripture is also not saying that these people are relatively righteous compared to other people. Remember, God does not grade on a curve. It's all or nothing, right? 
The scripture is not saying when it calls a group of people righteous or upright in heart that they are righteous enough in and of themselves somehow to merit God's favor. And here's the potentially offensive piece for us, maybe. Maybe, I don't know, maybe you'll rejoice in this reality. I do. When Scripture calls a group of people righteous or upright in heart, the Scripture does not mean, is not talking about people who have been sanctified enough that they are now considered righteous. So this is not a statement about the transformation of life on earth. It's real, but that's not what this text is saying. Because your transformed life and the Holy Spirit wrought righteousness that exists in your life and mine is Not only legitimate and real, it's awesome, it's wonderful, it should be celebrated, we should be thankful, and it is still not finished. And because it's incomplete, because it's not perfect, you can't trust in it, nor can I. None of those things are possible. For the scripture to be saying that the upright in heart and the righteous are righteous in and of themselves or relatively righteous compared to others or righteous enough to merit God's favor or have been sanctified enough that they're now considered righteous, whoever would determine that standard, right? Some man would have to because God has only given us one standard and it's perfect. None of those things are possible biblically because scripture reminds us that none is righteous. No, not one. Scripture tells us that God, like I said earlier, doesn't grade on a curve. It's all or nothing when it comes to keeping His law. You break one part of it, you're guilty of breaking all of it. Scripture makes it clear too that no one is justified before God through works of the law. Not possible. Because of our fall in Adam. We're born in corruption. And then we sin because we are sinners by nature. Scripture tells us that we're transformed by the Holy Spirit working in and through us and that we walk in good works that God has prepared for us. The Scripture will even call us saints. But the Scripture is also quite clear that all of that flows out of and is grounded in the declaration that God has made over His people which says righteous. It's a legal declaration just like the fall was. You realize that. The fall of man was a legal declaration by God. Condemnation through representation in Adam. Legal declaration. Guilty. It's right to talk in those terms. And then in Christ, there is another legal declaration. Righteous by faith in Him. So all of those things that we want to celebrate by way of sanctification and growth and maturation and Holy Spirit wrought righteousness, they all flow out of and are grounded in that declared reality. And it is that declared reality, that objective reality, righteous in Christ alone by faith. That's where we stand. As I've said many times lately, the most common way that Christians are referred to in the Bible is by the phrase in Christ. I would stake my ministry on this fact. It's the greatest thing in the world to be in Christ. The greatest thing in the world to be in Christ. Because in Him there are obviously blessings untold. It's a pretty awesome deal. Right? In Him, in Christ, 
This is just some Bible for you to kind of marinate in as we land the plane. In Christ, we are not destined for wrath, but to obtain salvation. In Christ, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In Christ, we have been adopted as sons and daughters of God. In Christ, we have redemption through His blood. In Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, namely the kingdom of God. In Him, we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. In Him, we have been raised to walk in newness of life. In Him, we will be raised imperishable. In Him, we have been declared righteous. In Him, we are forgiven. And brothers, sisters, blessed are the forgiven. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, it only feels appropriate to continue to praise You now. As this message has come to a close, God, we pray that that You would use these things that we have considered from Your Word in our hearts and our minds. We pray that Your Word would do its work. And Father, we feel appropriate to praise You for Your great plan of redemption and the fact that by Your grace, so many who sit in this room are now found in Christ. Father, we pray that we would live lives that honor You. We pray for Your Spirit's continued work in our lives. And Father, we rejoice in the reality that we stand in Christ alone, always. We pray that you, by your Spirit, would always be causing us to look outside of ourselves to Him. And that looking to Christ, we would find forgiveness and assurance and hope and restoration and healing and freedom. We thank you for sending your Son. And we pray all of these things and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.